Thanks for coming back. I've just been asked to announce that the poinsettias up here are for your taking, free. So anyone that wants one can come. Uh, so if you want to move forward now, that's all right to get a head start. And uh, if you're older, you can get a young person to run up here or something. But uh, first come, first served, decently and in order. Okay. This works out to your advantage. I'm on early tonight, and I don't have extra material, so I think you might get out a little early, but who knows. All right, we're looking at the obtaining of righteousness, and just to bring us uh, up to date, as we've been working through this now for an extended period of time, let me go back to where we started with the emphasis that there are two different emphases when it comes to what does righteousness look like. And I've said that it has become a generational divide, almost, in the way in which generations look or consider what righteousness looks like. <clears throat> the older generation emphasizes moral issues, moral purity, Special, especially sexual issues, so that righteousness looks like purity. The younger generation emphasizes social justice issues, so that being righteous is being concerned about the oppressed, being concerned about people that are living in poverty, being concerned about people who are experiencing injustices. And what I've been trying to emphasize is that both are firmly rooted in the scriptures. And we should not emphasize one at the sake of the other, but we're to understand that the scripture speaks both concerning moral purity issues and social justice issues. You find that throughout the scriptures. You find it wherever righteousness is taught in the scriptures. For example, even the Ten Commandments. When you think of moral purity issues in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. When you think of social justice issues, you shall not steal. You shall not take from someone else that which belongs to them. You should not defraud someone. So whenever the Word of God uh, is speaking about righteousness, we need to understand it in the totality of that. Social justice and moral issues. Tonight, we want to take a longer-term view of what it means to be righteous, <clears throat> get a, a sense of what God desires from us. So what I decided to do was to take an aerial view of First and Second Peter. So tonight, we're going to go through the entire books of First and Second Peter emphasizing what the scriptures speak concerning righteousness. It gives us a nice big overview if we can take into consideration both books. And so uh, it's kind of a daunting undertaking, but I've boiled it down. 
And we're just going to follow in order the logical progression of First and Second Peter when it talks concerning righteousness. And it helps us to see righteousness from the beginning to the end. So we begin with Roman numeral number one. Jesus died for us so that we would become righteous. Jesus bore our sinfulness on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in the, his body on the tree. And Jesus died so that we would live righteously. He himself bore our, bodies, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Here's the purpose. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. <clears throat> Number one, this is more than an objective or imputed righteousness. <clears throat> so we can talk about uh, righteous objectively and subjectively. Objectively, it is being counted righteous. And we know that through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was counted as a sinner and bore our sins so that we could be counted as righteous. All right? So he was counted a sinner so that we could be counted righteous. So God looks at us as being righteous on the basis of what Jesus Christ had done. But that doesn't exhaust the issue. Because Jesus did not die simply so that we could be viewed as righteous. He died to subjectively make us righteous. So here is where there is an asymmetrical aspect to the death of Christ. Okay? He was treated as unrighteous so that we could be treated as righteous. But Jesus never became unrighteous. Jesus never became sinful. He was treated as sinful. He bore the consequences of our sinfulness, but he never became sinful. Not before our sins were laid upon him, nor after our sins were laid upon him. Even after our sins were laid upon him, he did not begin to curse. He did not begin to uh, rail against those that had been his uh, malefactors. Uh, he extended grace to the thief on the cross who began to mock him, but later said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He continued to be forgiving. It was never the intent of God the Father to make God the Son unrighteous or unholy. He was treated as unrighteous so that we could be treated as righteous. But it wasn't simply of God the Father that we would merely be treated as righteous. Rather, Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we would actually become righteous. That we would actually become righteous. And so, number three, we are to live righteously now and in the future age. Now and in the future age. So this underlined section of 1 Peter 2.24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, this is extremely important because the gospel has really been misrepresented 
in our generation. The emphasis that most people place on the gospel is that Jesus Christ died to save us from the penalty of our sins. Period. They say that is the gospel. That really isn't the gospel. Jesus Christ died, and he had to die because of the penalty of our sins, but he died to take away our sins. Not just the penalty, he died to remove our sinfulness. And of course, we're going to see that ultimately, when we are in his presence, we are going to be without sin. We're not just simply going to be treated as though we have no sin. We are going to be sinless. We won't lie. We won't cheat in his eternal kingdom. We won't commit adultery. We won't commit any sin because he died to deliver us from sins in their totality. Okay? Which brings a lot of confusion. Because the gospel is not a simple offer of, here you are, go continue to live in your sin, but if you want to go to heaven and live with you in your sin, then you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't continue to live in your sin and accept Jesus and you get a get-out-of-free-jail card or an actually-get-out-of-hell-free card and you can go to live with him. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about repentance. The gospel is if you want to be delivered from your sins, if you recognize the misery of your sin, if you recognize your rebellion against God, if you realize that sin is, is, is miserable and it's filled with anguish and hardship and you want to be delivered from your sins, you have a Savior, Jesus, who died to take away our sins. That's the gospel. Okay? So if you want to be free from your sinfulness, trust in Jesus. He is the only way to be free from your sinfulness. And yes, it includes the aspect that in order to free you from your sinfulness, he paid for the penalty of your sin. C, Jesus, through his atoning work, healed us of the disease of sin. 1 Peter 2.24, by his wounds you have been healed. It is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 53. Okay, Through Jesus' heals, we have been healed. Okay? Healed, referring to this aspect of this sinful disease. Uh, it's likened in the Old Testament to leprosy. It just spreads. And sin has this tendency to spread in our lives. But Jesus died to heal us from our sins, to, again, remove that sinfulness from us. Two, therefore, we are to live righteously even when it will cost us. Sometimes there is a cost that accompanies living righteously. We're just working our way through 1 Peter at this point. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. This is a third-class condition. It's assumed. It's assumed. It's assumed that you are going to live, you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. The scripture gives it as a matter of fact that 
those who live righteously are going to suffer persecution. The world that we live in doesn't like righteousness. And if you live righteously, as we are going to see, it's going to result in uh, suffering. We should understand that. Jesus did not die to make us happy. Jesus did not die to make us rich. Jesus did not die to make us prosperous. Jesus died to make us righteous. And in this world, suffering is associated with righteousness. Not in the world to come, but in the present time. Which brings us to B. Despite that present cost, there's a future blessing that is associated with living righteously. But even if you suffer righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It's a future statement. You will be blessed. You will experience, you will inherit all the promises of God. They're associated with his kingdom and the fruit of righteousness. Therefore, we're not to be intimidated by those who are living unrighteously. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Those people that are upset with you living righteously. Don't worry about them. Okay, That's easier said than done, but, uh, because it may even include death. As uh, Jesus died for righteousness' sake. We are not promised to be sparing our physical life for righteousness' sake. Three, we are to follow the example of Jesus, who being righteous died for the unrighteous. Christ himself suffered for living righteously. For Christ also suffered once for sins. B, Christ being righteous suffered on behalf of those who are unrighteous. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered on behalf of the unrighteous in order to reconcile them to God, that he might bring us to God. If you were here a few weeks ago, I gave a morning message on this aspect, that uh, the uh, ministry of reconciliation, of bringing us into a right relationship with God, and then how that ministry of reconciliation was passed unto us. Christ died physically, but was preserved spiritually. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So the idea here is this is not a denial of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, but rather is a statement that when he died, he died physically. But he did not die spiritually. When Jesus died, his body was placed in the tomb. But Jesus was with the Father. When he died, he said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. He said to the thief on the cross, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was righteous and entered the presence of the Father. We should not fear physical death. 
For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We are to have that attitude that what are we to fear? Fear not him who can merely kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. We are taught in the Gospels. So we are not to fear persecution. We're not to fear suffering. Now, notice the application. We're to follow Christ's example of suffering righteously for the unrighteous, even in the area of marriage. 1 Peter 3.1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold or jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Saying, if you want to win your husband over, if you want to win your husband over, don't do it by trying to make yourself beautiful. In the sense of the way you wear your hair, the way in which you wear your clothes, you want to win your husband over, do it by your spirit. Do it by the attitude that you manifest. Do it by, do it by meekness. Do it by having the spirit of Christ. Treat the unrighteous person with gentleness and forgiveness and kindness, the way that Jesus treated the unrighteous person. The righteous person is willing to suffer to bring the unrighteous person into a relationship with God. That's the bottom line. That's what righteousness looks like. The righteous person is willing to suffer so that the unrighteous person can be brought into a relationship with God. That's what it means to look like Christ. That's what it means to look like Jesus. That's what it means in Philippians when it says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in, master, and being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death of the cross. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the unrighteous. F, therefore, living righteously means that we must be concerned for reaching the lost at all costs. No matter what they have done to us. No matter how they have treated us. No matter how they have been disrespectful to us. It transcends every relationship. Mother, daughter, father, son, aunt, uncle, wife, husband, aunt, uncle, neighbor, friend, person overseas, person next door, your worst enemy, your best friend. The righteous person is willing to be treated in irrehensible ways to suffer in order to reach others. That's where I wanted to go with this aspect of what righteousness looks like. I've been taking a painstakingly slow process 
because I, I wanted to show you that um, righteousness indeed is concerned about all these things, uh, social justice and morality and uh, etc. And so what's going to happen in what I said I was going to do when I started this, we're finally there, okay? January 17th, in the morning, Dwayne Moyer is going to come, and uh, he's going to uh, emphasize the reality of the Great Commission and what does that look like for us. And it's not just about going over there. It's about being a missional people to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Starting Sunday night, January the 17th, that's the first night, our brother John Elias and his wife are going to come. And they're going to introduce us to Islam. And what do the Islamic people believe? He's worked with Islam, Islamic people uh, both in England and here in the United States. He's going to explain to us what Islamic belie beliefs are, how to reach the Islamic people. He's going to have two or three nights. We haven't worked it out yet. He's working through what he wants to do, and we're putting our heads together, but he's going to be with us at least two nights, maybe three, okay? Then we're going to look at how do we reach homosexual people? How do we reach? The point is, the point is that our ultimate goal is to reach the lost. It's not to destroy the lost. It is not the lost pay. It is not to be indifferent to the lost. It is not to rejoice over the damnation of the lost. It is by all means to try to deliver people from the consequences of their sin so that they, in turn, would live righteously and holy and justly. Number four, we remember that our righteousness is found in Jesus alone. Therefore, we are no better than anyone else. This is the standing of righteousness. This is the object of righteousness, not the subject of righteousness. That object of righteousness is the beginning of the discussion of the book of 2 Peter. Peter is both a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, High, exalted position, right? Here he is. He is a servant. That's nice, but he's an apostle. Handful of those. Nevertheless, those believers to whom Peter writes have the same acceptance with God that Peter does. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now look at this. To those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Through faith, we all have an equal standing with God. None of us are better than the other. All of us are saved not by our righteousness. Every single one of us is saved by Christ's righteousness. Not one of us is good enough to stand before God and be pronounced innocent, to be pronounced blameless. It is only in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have any acceptance. Therefore, we should understand that everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ has an equal standing before God. We're all on the same footing. 
And I tried to emphasize that down through the weeks in talking about our personal righteousness, and that does not make us more acceptable to God. You can't get any more accepted than the acceptance we have through Christ. We are his child. Join heirs with Christ. We have an entrance into heaven made abundantly through the Lord Jesus. See, that is because everyone's righteousness comes from God and not from oneself. I already got ahead of myself. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We who suffer for righteousness' sake will be kept even through, though in this present time life is difficult. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought upon the world of the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Then what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is an illustration of God's future judgment upon the unrighteous. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. There is this future aspect of judgment. Uh, I I emphasized on uh, the Christmas messages in Sunday morning that the first coming was not to condemn. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his Son not in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. So not a single person lost their life when Jesus came into the world, for it was not the time for Jesus to condemn the world. It was not the time for Jesus to judge sin. It was not the time for Jesus to bring in absolute righteousness now. It was the time in which Jesus came to offer a peace branch that you can have entrance into my kingdom. You can become a servant of mine if you will trust in me. Your sins can be forgiven and you can be having a relationship with me. I will be your king. You will be my servant. But the day is coming when there's going to be judgment just as there was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Seven. There is a great deal of hardship that we presently suffer by living among unrighteous people. There is oppression that results from living among the ungodly. Second Peter 2.7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sexual conduct of the wicked. I uh, put 724 in here from Acts just to show you how this word is most often translated. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man. That is referring to uh, Joseph. No, I'm not. I'm I'm saying Moses. I'll get this right. Moses. Uh, When uh, Moses intervened between those people that were fighting, and he uh, struck down the Egyptian. He defended the oppressed man. That's what righteousness does. But in this instance, Lot was oppressed. And you remember the story, how he was coming to the aid of those men, turned out to be angels, I did not know that, but those men who came into the city, he offered them a place to stay, offered his house, And then when the city came together and in their wickedness, 
uh, when they wanted to have that sexual relationship with these men, he went outside and risked his life in order to spare those men. He was oppressed. He was oppressed. There are many places on the face of this earth where your life is in danger for being oppressed, for being righteous. That's new to us. That's new to us. And quite frankly, we're not responding too well to it. We're acting differently than our brothers and sisters around the world. When we're faced with, well, this, this might cost us our life, well, we better, get, we better get armed and we better be sure that we take the life of the person before they take our lives. That's not the gospel. Strike them before they strike you. It's not the gospel. Suffering for righteousness' sake is the gospel. We could be experiencing some real difficult times. I'm no soothsayer, but I, I really worry about what, where our country is headed. I'm worried about where the church is headed. And I think that we could really start seeing some ramifications for seeking to live righteous and holy lives. I think we have to be prepared for it. And we have to understand that something strange is not happening. But it's been through, down through the ages. We have been remarkably preserved by having such a Christian influence in our nation for so long. That's been a real blessing. But unfortunately, that Christian influence is waning. And even within the churches, that Christian influence is waning, and the message is changing. And as a result, we live in perilous times. B, there's a great deal of inner pain that results from living among the ungodly who acts in ways that contradict what we know to be right. Number one, it's very troubling to live among unrighteous people acting in ways that we know to be unacceptable. Second Peter 2.8, for as the righteous man lived among them, this is referring to Lot in Psalm Gomorrah, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The lawless deeds here are referring to the moral law. It's referring to the Ten Commandments. It's referring to the way in which they lived these ungodly, unholy lives. And it says that it, it tormented him. The best synonym that I can come up with is mental duress, anguish, strain. He was pained by what he saw and what he heard. This should be our response of living among an ungodly people. It should create mental distress. He lamented the deplorable state of Sodom and Gomorrah, but not just for him, but he lamented the deplorable state for everyone. It is awful. It is awful. The consequences. You see, we should feel bad for the AIDS victim. Not just simply say they get what they deserve. All of us are sinners. We should feel bad 
to see somebody suffering and dying of AIDS. Not gleefully excited that they got their comes uppins. We can just be thankful we didn't get our comes uppins. We should be moved by that. We should feel terrible when we hear about someone who goes into a theater or whatever and kills 130 people. We should feel bad for every family. We should feel bad for the relatives of that gunman. We, we should feel bad for the gunman himself. To think that someone would be so overcome with hatred and evil and the working of the evil one. What a terrible world we live in. That should be the response. Oh, that we'd be free from this sinful world in which we live. This stands in contrast to number two. The unrighteous give broad approval to others who are living unrighteously. Verse 32 of Romans 1. Though they know God's righteousness decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Unrighteousness gives approval to other unrighteousness. The righteous person does not express approval. The righteous person expresses disapproval. But not for the sense of condemnation, but for the sense of offering deliverance. There is something better for you. There is something better for the person who thinks that life would be better if they became a woman when they're a man. We should feel sorry for somebody that feels that way. We should just be amazed at the mental anguish. How could someone think that their life would be better off by going through this painful operation, changing all their relationships with something else, that they are bettering their life. The only way their life is going to be bettered is through a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in which he's going to change and transform their heart and mind. And we should desperately want that for that person. We should understand the misery of the person who is trapped in a homosexual mentality and frame of mind and recognize that that person should experience a deliverance from that. And we should want them to experience that deliverance. And it doesn't mean just that, but you know, alcohol, drugs, whatever the sin is, to want people to experience deliverance. Not to give approval, but to give hope. And not to give condemnation, but to express the reality that your life can be changed and you can experience forgiveness. And you can experience righteousness. See, we do not want to shrink back from living righteously due to the ungodly influence that surrounds us. 2 Peter 2, 20 to 21. For if, now it's talking about these people who profess faith in Christ, but then go back to a former lifestyle. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It's better for a person 
who experiences what righteousness really is, it would be better for them if they never experienced it than if they experience it and go back on a ton of different levels. It's a warning. It's a warning to not let unrighteousness overtake us. To not let holiness overcome us. Okay? We can't allow ourselves to become indifferent to unrighteousness. It's got to continue to vex our righteous soul, as it says in this passage. Okay? When it talks about giving hearty approval, you know, we probably aren't going to walk up to somebody who's living a very sinful lifestyle and pat them on the back and say, oh boy, I'm glad you're living that way. That's great. Okay? We probably aren't going to do that. But we may watch a television show that flaunts and engrandizes unrighteous behavior and makes it look like it's fun or desirable or beneficial or cool or whatever and begin to get the idea that it would be okay to live unrighteously. We need to understand it's not okay for us to live unrighteously. Why is it not okay? Back to the aspect of <clears throat> because we want to honor and glorify God? Because we want to be like Christ? Because it diminishes our testimony? It makes us ineffectual in our witness for Jesus Christ? We want to live righteously and we want other people to live righteously because their life is better off for it. Our world is a better place for it. Christ is honored and glorified for it. And if they come to recognize the importance of righteousness in this life, they'll be spared from eternal damnation. Number eight, we should look forward with great anticipation to a time in which we will live in absolute righteousness. Knowing that the day of absolute righteousness is coming, we should strive to live righteously now. 2 Peter 3.11 Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Knowing that this world is going to be dissolved. I've left out big ch chunks of these books. You understand that. And, and, and um, talks about a time when this world is going to melt with fervent heat and so on. That's why back earlier it talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. The same thing that happened to Sodom is going to happen to this entire world. God is going to destroy it. He's going to make a new heaven. He's going to make a new earth. It says, seeing that all these things are to be solved, what, what kind of people ought we be? Living lives of godliness and holiness. We should keep a perspective. B, one day this world as we know it will be destroyed even as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. 2 Peter 3.12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. When that happens, God will create new heaven and new earth and we will live in absolute righteousness. Second Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells.
That's the utopia. That's what we're waiting for. I mentioned in my Sunday morning Christmas message, okay? We're not looking forward to a disembodied state in which we float around in an eternal worship service. We are looking for word to a new heaven and a new earth. Much like this earth, much like this heaven. Meaning the stars and moon. We are going to live in a world like this that is going to be one in which there is perfect righteousness. What will it look like? It will be the embodiment of the Ten Commandments. What will it look like? It will be people loving God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. What will it look like? It will be people loving each other the way they love themselves. People being honest. People being caring. People being concerned. People being morally pure. People not oppressing others, not taking other people into slavery, not abusing other people. That is the world we look forward to. That's the world we are striving for. That is the world we are aiming at. That is the world that we're trying to influence others to want and to desire. That is the kingdom that ultimately we are bringing in. And in this present age, Jesus is at work through the Holy Spirit in our lives, ruling in our hearts and minds to make us people that are righteous. Understand, the third member of the Trinity, we refer to as the Holy Spirit. Understand that is a descriptive title. God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. Why do we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit? Because the primary work and ministry of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy or righteous. He is the spirit of holiness. He is the spirit producing righteousness in us. That's why we can't produce our own righteousness. That's why the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Against such there is no law. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Because you can't simply Bring about these transformations in and of your own willpower. It requires the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ died to send us that spirit to live within us and to make us a holy people. And one day, when Jesus Christ returns, we will see him face to face and we will be transformed and we will become an absolutely holy people. Not just in position, but in reality. And we have the privilege of taking that message to the peoples of this world, and that's our responsibility in this present day to do the work of Christ, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous to bring them to God. That's our task, and that's what righteousness looks like. And it does it through moral purity, and it does it through social justice, and it fights the battles and invites the sinner without just condemning, but 
Not giving approval, but giving hope. There is deliverance. There is deliverance. There is freedom. You don't have to live this way. We don't have to live this way because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to share that message with others. No matter what they've done to us, no matter how they treated us, we want to develop hearts that are saddened over the destruction and loss of life of anyone. That's what righteousness looks like. As Jesus was going to the cross, as he entered Jerusalem, he took time and stopped and wept and said, how often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. Jesus wept over those that were going to nail him to the cross. We ought to weep over those that would want to do us harm. May God deliver them. May God save them. May God do a work in their hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Help us, Lord, to really be a people that are righteous by being forgiving, loving, caring, being concerned about injustices in this world, about people who are treated poorly just because of the color of their skin or because of the place where they live in this world. or the fact that they are crippled or maimed. May we shudder when people are made fun of, mocked, ridiculed. May we be pained by the mothers that have abortions and just think of the anguish that they are going through, the suffering, the inner turmoil. Oh Lord, may we be moved to be willing to be mocked, to be willing to be ridiculed, to be willing to be misunderstood, to be willing to suffer so that somebody else can embrace this wonderful Christ that we've had the privilege to come and know. Lord, work within us. Help us to understand what righteousness really looks like. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.